Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, before last week, when I was supposed to preach and didn't, uh, we had a, a few guest speakers speaking on three topics regarding what we like to call the DNA of our local expression of, uh, of church, our, our local gathering, uh, what you might call a faithful restatement of the gospel with implications for where we live, in the time that we live and in the culture we live. And those three things are theology, theological. We want to be a church that's theological. We want to be a church that is missional, on mission, because Christ is on mission. And thirdly, we want to be a church that is relational. We want to be a church that is uh, built together in a, a supernatural community based on the person of, and work of, of Christ. And after listening to those three things from a, a, a bird's eye view, I now want to complete that circle, take it back to theological. You can call this theological part two as kind of a bookend for this series to end it with as much practical insight as to what it means to be theological as a church so that we can go back into Ephesians with these things, enjoying Jesus together. And I think... Paul will tell us this beautifully in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Let's read this together. It says in verse 13 to the church in Thessalonica, This is why we constantly thank God. Because when you received the message about God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the message of God which also works effectively in you believers. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, your word declares that your word will not return void. It will accomplish its purpose everywhere that you send it. And we know that you are sending your word to us this morning. We ask that as your church, you would strip away those silly things that entangle us and that keep our eyes from seeing Christ exalted. We pray that as we open your word, that Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts to receive your word. I pray that you would protect us from anything that I bring to the word of God that is not faithful to the scriptures, that somehow it would fall on deaf ears. But everything that your scriptures speak to the church today would make its way deep into the soil of our hearts and that it would bear fruit. Thank you, Lord, for sustaining this church in Carpinteria for nine years, in Ventura for three years, and in Santa Barbara for one year. God, it is our desire and our plea that in our growth and in our age, you would keep us from going on to autopilot, that you would keep us from simply growing older that as we grow older, we would grow more in love with Jesus. We would grow more passionate about the things that make your heart beat on the coastlands. And we would see that your work is not over. I pray that you would stir up a flame in us as a church, a burning desire to see your kingdom come. We pray that that would happen as we read your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What does it mean for a church to be theological? 
Specifically, what does it mean for reality to be theological among every other body here on the coast and in the world? I think a a way that we can get closer to that answer is by asking the contrasting question, what would it be like for a church to not be theological? And for that, we can look at the example of Thessalonica. Not that they were not being theological. Paul actually commends them for their faith and for their efforts. And yet he warns them of the trajectory that they are about to partake on if they refuse to cling to the things of God. Paul, if you read uh, 1 Thessalonians in conjunction with the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 17, where we see the history of the church being planted in Thessalonica, we see in Acts chapter 17 that Paul actually is there for a, a short period of time. He's only preaching the gospel for, it says, three Sabbaths, I think about three weeks. And then he's chased out of town by people who hate him. So for a matter of three weeks, he's preaching the gospel. And in that amount of time, a church blows up out of nothing. People apprehend the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a church is born in a pagan city, in a little metropolitan port town on the coast. He's chased out of town. And as they begin to... uh, immerse themselves in culture as Paul is gone and they have no one to guide them. They don't have Bibles on their own. They can't read the scriptures as we do. Paul has left. We find as we read 1 Thessalonians that they actually began to revert back to old behaviors that they were accustomed to, especially due to suffering that they were being faced with as new Christians, death, paganism. Things like uh, their culture being steeped in uh, Greek polytheism, which is basically uh, the belief that there are many gods. We can just call that idolatry. Many idols facing them as a new church. Uh, They faced a, a lax sense of morality, or we could call that relativism. Everything is true for you as long as you feel okay about it, as long as it works for you. Just do it. It's fine. They were facing that. They were also facing a lack of hope in face of conflict and affliction and suffering. People were dying as we read uh, throughout the letter that their loved ones were dying. They had no sense of hope. And so Paul re, uh, writes First Thessalonians to the church in order to steer them back on course. But what does a church look like when there is no theology like that? We can look at Thessalonians and the church in Thessalonica and see easily that a church will become like its surrounding culture. Thessalonica went immediately back to all of those things that they were steeped in. And so will Santa Barbara. So will Carpinteria and so will Ventura. Every culture that is not under the lordship of Jesus Christ will have its own idols that it serves. And apart from a theological vision of God, we will go back to what culture has dictated us to do and to worship and to behave. A church is a gathering, a people of God formed by what God tells us is true. You look at the culture on the coastland of California, specifically Southern California, and you see a culture that lends itself to similar things that the church in Thessalonica did as well. Polytheism, idol worship. You don't have to look too far to see that there are idols in Santa Barbara and in Carp and in Ventura and abroad. There is relativism. 
there's a sense that whatever is true for you as an individual is your religion. As long as you're fine with it, nobody should get into your business. It works for you. It should be fine with everyone else. There's idols specifically uh, in Southern California like the culturally, uh, culturally driven hope uh, towards self, the self-centered narcissism that is embedded in our nature. It's an inordinate fascination with ourselves. I find myself growing too comfortable with myself at times uh, without an identity grounded in who God is, not just who we are. We will begin to grow into a gathering like this one, filled with disconnected people who, yeah, meet in a building and sing the same songs and listen to the same teaching, but who are largely disconnected from one another. Why? Because they're lovers of self. They don't submit to one another. They don't love each other over their own desires. They've come only to satisfy their desires and their own well-being. I'm not saying that's how we are. I'm saying that's how we will be apart from a theological vision. Our worship will largely be centered around our own self-esteem, what makes us feel comfortable, what makes us feel good about ourselves, what makes us feel righteous, instead of the glory of God to whom it is due. And that's just the natural trajectory of all humanity. It's not specific to reality, right? It's specific to every church. It's not even specific to a church, but any gathering or community that meets anywhere in the world left to ourselves, humanity has no one else to turn to but ourselves. So we do, and we do it very well. Like a baby turning to her mother. It's the same with the Thessalonians. And so Paul, back in his hiding place, writes 1 Thessalonians in order to strengthen, as he would say in chapter 3, to strengthen and encourage this new church concerning their faith by reminding them that the one true God speaks to them in their time, in their culture, in their city, and in their place. And he tells us that God makes himself known to us, and he still does to this day, primarily through his word. Meaning, he has chosen to communicate to you, and to me, and to Thessalonica, and to Ephesus, and to Ventura, and to Boston, and to Shanghai, and to every church that you can possibly name. He has chosen to this day to communicate about himself through apostles and prophets throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament about himself. And we see Paul speaking and alluding to this very vividly in verse 13. You received the message about God, listen to that, a message about God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the message of God. Listen to these things that Paul is saying. He's saying there is a message specifically about God. Let's forget about you for a minute. There is an overarching theme, an overarching story that starts with God. And you are hearing it right now. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, the Bible, the scriptures, this gospel didn't just fall out of the sky into our laps, right? He's saying, you heard it from us. You welcomed it. Uh, excuse me, you received the message about God that you heard from us. And so, this gospel about God was delivered through and mediated through human authors. 
And yet he pulls this move and he says, and yet you did rightly in accepting what we delivered to you, not as a human message, but you welcomed it as it truly is, the message of God. He would say what Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 exactly, that the scriptures are not a matter of human will. They didn't come out of a, a human will or a matter of interpretation, but men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God spoke to humanity in time and in history and in culture as men that he authored, or excuse me, as men that he inspired would write down what he told them to write. And Paul right now is claiming this for himself. We delivered you the message and you accepted it as you should, as a message from God. The word of God is mediated through these people from God himself, recorded for us in scripture. And so what are we to do with it? 2,000 years later, what are we to do with the words that people have written down for the church as they have been inspired by God? Paul describes two ways in which the church hears. There's two ways to hear the word of God. One, he says, you received the message about God. The other is you welcomed the message of God. When he says you received, he uses this line all the time in his writings. He's speaking of nothing more than just the transmission of information. This is what I'm doing with you. I'm transmitting information to you, and you are, to some extent, receiving it. To one extent or another, receiving a transmission of information. But some of us might beg the question, well, wait a minute. I know Paul can speak as though God is speaking through him because he's an apostle. I know that when Moses speaks, it's as if God is speaking because he's a prophet. I know that when Jesus speaks, it is God speaking because he is God. But you are none of those. So what type of preaching should we have in a church if our entire purpose of gathering as a church is to hear from God? Since I know who you are, Chris... Seeing you when you were 15, and I can tell you for certain, you are not God. <laughs> what should you be hearing from a preacher? Well, you should be hearing the words of Scripture explained and proclaimed. You should be hearing what some would call expositional preaching. You should be hearing what has already been spoken from God to humanity. You should be hearing it again and again and again and explained and mined and uh, 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 dived into and immersed in and applied. You should hear the words of the Bible over the words of humanity. Why this emphasis on the words of God? Don't we have anything new? This has been around for 2,000 years. It's somewhat archaic. Don't we have anything else? Why is there such an emphasis in this place on the words of the Bible? Because we want to hear God speak. And we believe that he has spoken. And in the scriptures, he has supplied for us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. And we want to come as a corporate gathering and say, we're listening to you, Lord. 
We're hearing you. We want to hear what God has to say. And does he speak to us through his word? Well, Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Jesus would say in John chapter 6 verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Moses Moses would say in Deuteronomy chapter 8, man does not live uh, uh, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus would claim those words for himself. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4 verse 12, the word of God is living and active. Some of you say, well, I don't know how the scriptures apply themselves to my nine-to-five job. I don't know how to make this relevant to the struggles and afflictions that I'm going to. The author of Hebrews would say, it is applicable for everything that you will ever go through in this life. And it is unlike any book that you will ever carry on your shelves. It is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And it has the ability to penetrate into dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It can take your thoughts and the attitude of your heart and it can cause you to look at yourself as in a mirror to see your need for a Messiah. That's what scripture does. Expositional preaching and teaching can simply be put like this. If we put that much claim on the words of God, then expositional preaching is to take the main point of the text and make, the main, make that the main point of the sermon. It's to say, what does this mean? That's why, we, uh, that's why we read books like this. We don't just want to read what it says. We want to know what it means. And so we're taking the, the main point of the text and we're turning it into the main point of the sermon. You got a group of young dudes or young gals that you're pouring into and having a Bible study, you look at that passage and you find out what it means and then you speak to them according to what it means. That's your main point. What are other ways that the scripture is explained and proclaimed? Well, it's in your own personal time reading the Bible for yourself. Some of you are going through the one-year Bible reading. In that, you are Uh, transmitting the information of Scripture to your soul. It's more than just reading, it's meditating. Some of you take notes. You you don't just want to read the line and move on to the rest of your life. You want to digest it. You want to meditate on it. I think we should bring back the, the committing of Scripture to memory so that when we close our Bibles and go to work, we're working with the words of God just simmering in our in our minds. We're praying over it. We're thinking about it. We're dwelling upon it. This is, by the way, why we construct the gathering on Sunday mornings the way it is. It's why we have a long extended time of worship through song after the sermon. Because for some of us, God is speaking to us, not necessarily through me or through a person, but through the word as it's proclaimed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And far be it from us, what a disservice we would do if God was speaking to you through your word and we dismissed you immediately after to go to lunch. As he's trying to work in you, his word. And so we've decided, no, we're not going to the beach just yet. We're not going to lunch just yet. We want to sit in this place and let the Holy Spirit continue to work in us. Sometimes when the first chord is strummed after the sermon, I'll I'll watch 
40 to 50 people leave the building. And I understand some of you have to go to the bathroom. That's totally fine, dude. I got to go right now. <clears throat> and some of you will, after the sermon, there's no guilt in that. Nobody's sweating you. Some of you have children. You got to go pick them up. Some of you have to go to work. There's all sorts of variables and reasons. But a lot of us just leave because the only thing we came for is a sermon. That's the only part of the gathering of Jesus Christ that is of value to us. And yet the word stretches itself throughout the entire gathering. It's in the announcements. The psalmist declared in the Psalms that we are to declare the works and the acts of God from one generation to another. That's why we do announcements. We are bragging about God to one another. Obviously, we preach the scriptures. That's why we're in the word. But then after God has convicted our hearts by the word of God, we want to sit in that place and continue to be convicted and repent. And so even the songs are expositional. We've taken the main point of the text and built the entire set list around that main point. That's why as some of you are on the carpets and the song seems to be speaking directly to your heart, it's because we're centering everything or we're endeavoring to center everything around what the Word of God is saying to us as a church. Don't leave. The Holy Spirit is not done with you. Heard it put in the words of this young gal uh, quite recently. She said, I saw these people moving and getting on their faces on the carpets and I didn't know what the big deal was. I thought they were just being showy or weird or something and I, I just would leave early. But then I, I just got really crazy and I tried it one day. I was just in the presence of God and he began to work on my heart. And now, in her own words, I am a weekly carpet rat. <laughs> carpet rat. I want to be a carpet rat. I want to be able to hear the voice of God speaking to me, and I don't ever want to leave. And of course, we're going to have to leave in an hour or so. But let the Word of God continue to speak to you wherever you go. And we don't just stop right there. We, we go home. We, we wake up in the morning. We open up our scriptures in the afternoon, whatever it looks like for you at work, and we begin to study the Word if theology means that we want to know God, then we would be changing the entire way that we read the scriptures. In America, it is very common to read the scriptures with this lens in particular. What does the Bible mean to me? What does it say about me? Think of what this would look like if you were to turn to the story of David and Goliath, classic. I am reading the scriptures and I've done this countless times times in my youth, my youth, reading the story of David and Goliath going, wow, David is awesome. And I could be awesome too. <laughs> David is short and doesn't have a job. And he is the youngest of many siblings, just like me. And look at what he did. What does the Bible mean for me? It means I can defeat the giants in my life. And this is often how we read the scriptures. How is it making me feel better about myself? And what happens when we have that lens? Well, we, re we leave the scriptures making ourselves the hero. Because the Bible all of a sudden is about us. But it's not about us. The Bible is primarily a book about God. 
And you hear this perhaps all the time. Well, you can defeat the giants in your life, the giants of debt and financial management and the giants of relationship in your life. And you can defeat the giants of college and all of the essays that you have to, there are many afflictions in life. But if you just gather the five stones of the sermon series that I'm about to give you, then you can also have your best life now. Very easy, right, to make the Bible about us and for us to come away from it a hero, for us to come back to church, to gather as the church the following Sunday broken because we make really bad heroes. I do. But if we approach the Bible knowing that it is primarily about God, look at what that would do. When I read the story of David and Goliath and I see that nobody on the earth is a hero, Israel is hiding in the hills because they can't handle the Philistines. And the only person that steps forward is completely inadequate to do anything about it. God emerges as the hero. And once you discover God in Jesus Christ as the hero, then you can begin to ask, well, what are the implications for his heroic deeds in my life? What is the implication for God's work and God's person for me? in my life changes everything. It begins to reveal that God is the hero and that we are sinners. It begins to show our sinfulness and our need, not our good works and not our good nature because we have none. Paul would say in Romans chapter 2 verse 13, the hearers of the law are not righteous before God. You don't get better just because you read the Bible over and over. It's the doers of the law that will be declared righteous. And he goes on to say, nobody does good, Romans chapter 3. Nobody seeks after righteousness. No one seeks after God perfectly. God becomes the hero. We become the ones that need rescuing. See, the problem is that a mere transmission of information can easily fall on deaf ears. You'll either be the the group of people that says, oh yeah, I can do this. You'll be like Israel, yeah, I will complete all the commands you have given me, Lord, all of them and more. You struggle to do that. You become self-righteous or legalistic and burdened under the weight of the law. Or you become repulsed because you disagree with everything that God is telling you to do. But either way, the transmission, the simple uh, transmission of information simply falls on deaf ears. My little daughter, Abigail, is seven days old. And when she's screaming, yeah. When she's screaming at three in the morning, and I pick her up, and I'm like, Abby, don't scream. What does she do? But Abby, the Bible says, honor your parents in the Lord. (laughs) How many of you with older kids, perhaps older than seven days old, know what I'm talking about? That when you teach your kids, they don't always adhere to everything you say forever all the time. That's where the 60s and 70s came from. Millions of people that didn't obey their parents all the time. Our problem is that we're self-centered. We love our idols, and we are our favorite idol. We even treat the scriptures like that. A book to help me feel better about myself. The problem is not the transmission of information. We can read this until we're black and blue in the face. The problem is we are sick and sinful. And God must enable us to understand his word in any meaningful, salvific way.
That moves on to the second type of hearing. It's not just something to be received, but look at what he says in verse 13. I thank God because you received the message about God that you heard from us, but listen to this, comma, you also welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the message of God. I want to give you three proofs that this form of hearing is not self-originated. This comes from the power of God bestowed upon you by His grace. That apart from Him and His work, this would be like reading a foreign language to any one of us. Proof number one, Paul often uses this term to welcome the word, to, re- uh, to recognize that it's God's effectual power on the life of a rebel. Here's an example, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's spirit. Why? Because it's foolishness to him or her. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. Meaning there's something outside of ourselves that needs to take place for us to understand this beyond just intellectualism or selfishness. Proof number two, look at what happens when these people welcome, not just receive the word of God. At the end of verse 13, it makes them believers. In other words, that which only happens by grace through faith alone occurs when people understand the word of God in a supernatural way. The message, as Paul says, works effectively in them. Proof number three. Look at how he starts the entire sentence. This is why we constantly thank God. Thank God for what? Because you welcome the message as being from God, not men. In other words, he doesn't take the credit. He doesn't push the credit onto Apollos or onto Sylvanus or onto Timothy or onto himself. He says, I thank God that you are able to understand what God is speaking to you through us. Why is Paul so elated and stoked with the Thessalonians? Because he sees the power of the Holy Spirit applying the power of the gospel to rebels and sinners as the word of God is proclaimed. And as he would say in chapter 1 verse 5, our gospel did not come to you in word only, it came in power and it came in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. And as God is being known in that church, people are being satisfied in him over every other idol that they used to cling to. They are learning to enjoy Jesus above everything else. May this be our prayer. For God's word to be a delight to us and not simply a textbook of nice moral statements, we must be born again. And for those of us that are born again, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. A natural person cannot understand spiritual things. We need the mind of Christ and the Spirit of Christ alive in us individually and as a church to say, God, what are you speaking to us here? Think about this. None of you loved the Bible before God saved you. You might have read it. You might have grown up in a Christian home. You might have read it till you were blue in the face. But none of you looked at it as glorious and wonderful and life-giving and amazing. And now that you're saved, some of you love the Scriptures. You're transformed by the Scriptures. Some of you, to this day, still look at the Bible and you cannot understand the draw. And the Lord knows you have tried. You get up early in the morning, you read the one-year Bible, and you just don't get it. It is a struggle for you. It is a chore. Some of you have multiple translations in your house. 
You have every translation known to man, gathering dust. You do not read them because you don't understand the draw. And for you, because you don't understand what God is speaking to you through his word, you have no choice but to make Christianity about yourself again. You have no choice but to make religion and to the gathering of the church about what you're able to achieve. Maybe even reading the Bible. Well, I read the Bible. I read the Bible every year. I read it every day. I am a good Christian. Therefore, God should accept me. Brothers and sisters, if that is you, if there's nothing there for you as you open up the word of God, I recommend to you two things. One, perhaps you need to be born again by the spirit of God. Repent of your sins. Believe in the cross of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Follow after him and read the Bible, asking the Holy Spirit to enlighten your eyes. Maybe you are already saved and you just don't understand the draw. Ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I would get on my face for the life of me and say, Lord, I am not leaving my knees until you speak to me today. What else are we in this life for? To eat and sleep? What does it mean to be a church that is theological? It means that everything we do as a church must be realigned with what this book says about God. It means we are slowly learning to get over ourselves and to fall more in love with God who puts the pieces back together. It means we are endeavoring to move from being self-centered and self-obsessed and individualistic to desiring to revolve around his majesty and around his excellencies. It means we want to use the word of God in everything we do to lift and to pry our eyes away from self and away from circumstances, and away from everything else, and on to his glory. And friends, this only happens when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see Jesus Christ crucified and in a saving way. And that's the beauty, when that happens, of Bible study. Because you see where God is. You see how unlike God you are, and you begin to look for Christ in the Bible. You begin to look for Christ's atoning work to fill in the gap between you and God. And all of a sudden, the Bible begins to come alive. Seems so counterintuitive to say, well, you know, I've got all of these problems. I should be concentrating on myself and on my problems. But funny thing happens when you fixate your eyes on Jesus. Everything else seems to make a lot more sense. C.S. Lewis would say in The Weight of Glory, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. This is what happens when our eyes are fixated on the glory of God. He makes sense of everything else. Doesn't mean we're going to have our best life now. Doesn't mean your life is going to be a rose garden or that you're never going to suffer. But it means you will have hope in this life and you will have joy and purpose in this life. So I'm done with explaining that verse. I want to end with a couple things. In light of what the scripture says, here's what you can expect of me. You can expect of me to be committed to the word of God to the best of my ability. You can expect of me to preach expositionally and exegetically as this church has done for nine years. Not preach cultural trends, not preach 
self-help, not preach pop psychology, not preach the latest news, not preach personal preferences, not preach my life story, but to preach what God has said already in the Bible because we believe it. You can count on me to seek the Holy Spirit in prayer because I need the Holy Spirit to understand the Bible like anyone else in this room. You can count on me to try to be humble because I have recognized that I am only 31. And though the Bible is still authoritative despite my youth, I can easily bring to it my immaturity and my lack of experience. I will try to preach the Bible as humbly as possible and I ask for your prayers in that. You can count on me to preach the word of God to myself before I preach it to you. Here's what I expect of you. I expect two things. I expect you to be committed to the word of God. If you believe what it says about Christ and what he has done for us, I expect you to be Bereans. In Acts 17, Paul would say of the church in Thessalonica, you know, after we left Thessalonica, I met this, this group of cats called the Bereans. And you know what about them? They, they also welcomed the word, but they didn't just welcome the word for salvation. They examined it daily to make sure that what I was saying was what God was saying in the scriptures. Friends, I I will sweat over this thing to get it right, but I will get it wrong. There will be times on a Sunday morning when I will say something wrong. I do not have perfect theology. I'm 31. And if I say something that is not faithful to Scripture, don't pay attention. Don't listen to anything I say unless it is what, I, what, is, what the scripture is first declaring. And in order to know whether I'm being faithful to the scriptures, you're going to have to be faithful to the scriptures. Thank <laughs> God that works. And listen, you, you're going to need more than just one hour on a Sunday. You're going to need more than just my spewing and my spitting on a Sunday for one hour. You're going to need to be immersed in this for yourself. And why wouldn't you? This is such a joy. God has spoken to you, Christian. He loves you and he has spoken to you, but you're going to need more than just what I give to you on a Sunday. But two, don't just be a Berean. My Facebook wall is covered with cranky Bereans who love to criticize and do nothing about what the Word of God says. And it's none of you, by the way. Don't just be Bereans. Be doers of the word of God. Ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten your eyes every time you open it, every time it's preached, every time you hear it, every time you speak it. That as Paul would say in verse 13, it continues, it works effectively, meaning it continues to work in a believer. It doesn't just make you a believer, it continues to sanctify you in your walk with God. Recognize that you are hearing God to the degree that the word of God is faithfully represented. Meaning that if I am not faithful to the scriptures, don't pay attention. But if I am, if you have gone home and you have examined it for yourself and you say, yeah, that is what God is saying, then you must do it. Or you're like that person James speaks about who looks in a mirror, sees their image and walks away and forgets what they look like. Silly. Ultimately, let's just not play church. 
Let's just not be that typical American consumeristic church that shows up for the croissants and the laughs and the comedy and the good music and a lecture that hopefully makes me feel better about myself. Let's not treat the Bible like another self-help book at Barnes and Nobles, a book full of techniques that will help me be better at this life. Let's treat it like it truly is, God-breathed words given to a covenant community to know God more. Almost a decade ago, a man by the name of Peter Russell, who's our friend and brother and missionary with his family in Tanzania, spoke a prophetic word to this church before most of us were here, before I was here. And he said, God is calling reality to be like a ship. And in that ship, I see these giant sails. And the sails are a picture of that power, that wind of the Holy Spirit moving it along. And so we are to be a church that is powered along by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And yet he said, yeah, but under the ship is this giant rudder. And that rudder is like the scriptures. It's the word of God steering the course of the church. And so we are to be a church that is powered by the Holy Spirit and steered by the words of God. Charles Spurgeon would say, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. It's true of a church as well. Friends, let's be a church that is known for its love of Scripture. Not because Scripture is our highest aim, but because in it we discover that someone is in there worthy of our worship. And in times of trial and in times of tribulation, when the economy sinks, when our kids get cancer, when our loved ones die, when we suffer divorce, when we don't get the pay raise we thought we deserved, we will be able to say, as Paul did, I have found the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. Heavenly Father, let these things be done to us according to your word. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this family. All that you have accomplished in us by the power of God. We declare and believe that Jesus, you are not yet done. You are far from done. You have only begun. And your word says that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Lord, we, we want to go with you. Tear away the sin that so easily entangles us and make us people that long to be in the presence of God listening to you, driving with you in the passenger seat. We pray that as we worship, as we sing words that are true about you, that Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see your glory. Some of us don't even know you yet. Some of us are dry in our souls and hearts. I pray that you would give us a fresh feeling today. I pray that in this house, not a single soul would leave until we have met with the living God. Thank you that you are dwelling here in order for that to be accomplished. May it be done according to your word in Jesus' name. Amen.